Greetings, everyone. My name is Brian Reisman. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Guilty Treasures, a podcast devoted to all movie genre and cult. From horror films to vigilante flicks, we'll be covering it all, delving deep into subject matter that is often dismissed by the mainstream as empty cinematic calories. But those of us who are devoted followers of such films know that there is often more going on underneath the surface than meets the eye. For our first episode, I sat down to chat with Don Mancini, the creator of the Child's Play film franchise. Horror fans know that this six-film series focuses on Chucky, the good guy's doll possessed by the spirit of serial killer Charles Lee Ray, who is voiced by Brad Dourif. For a little guy, Chucky does a lot of damage, and with each new installment, he keeps trying to find a live human body to transfer his soul into, lest he be trapped forever in his diminutive plastic host. In the first three films, he goes after his original owner, Andy Barkley, a young boy who becomes traumatized by his cute toy come to sinister life. Chucky also got a mate in two Child's Play installments with the goth-looking Tiffany, an old girlfriend who comes back into his life and who is voiced by Jennifer Tilly, and that led to some funny, rambunctious adventures. Chucky is a true 80s icon who is universally recognized and who even made an appearance in Radio Shack's hilarious Super Bowl commercial last month just after I spoke to Mancini. For the Guilty Treasures podcast, Mancini and I spoke about the evolution of the series, the comedic turns it has taken, the films that influenced him, the cult following behind the very tongue-in-cheek and very gay seat of Chucky, the representation of gay and lesbian characters in the normally heterocentric world of horror movies, and much, much more. So without further ado, let's dive right in. This is Brian Reisman. This is the inaugural podcast for Guilty Treasures, and we are here with Don Mancini, the devious but jovial mastermind behind Chucky and the Child Play series. <laughs> you seem like such a nice young man, and yet there's this serial killer lurking in your mind. I just channel him. It's a gift. <laughs> it's a special gift. Yes. And you know, and last year was was great. It was a it was a, a big year for Chucky because you had the 25th anniversary, and then on top of that, uh, you had the new movie, which was great. It was a very gothic kind of horror movie, probably possibly one of the, the scariest of the whole franchise. Thank you. Yeah, that's that was our intention. That's what we were going for. We wanted to bring it back to the straight up scares that we'd started with the first three movies. They wanted so. That's what we tried to do, and it, it seems like most people were pretty happy with it, so that was really gratifying. It's interesting. It's been an interesting evolution. Like a lot of the famous franchises like, you know, with Jason and Freddy, they start off in a horror vein, and then they kind of go into this comedy vein, which is the same thing that happened with Chucky, and then it goes back again to the Fear Fest. Yeah, you know, these characters, they're pretty elastic. <laughs> you know, I think all those guys. I mean, and I, judging from the... Um, all the detritus there in your in your room. <laughs> You're a guy who can you know appreciate something like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and movies like that. I, I can only assume that like the custodians of those other horror franchises probably were wanting to do the same thing that that we want to do, which was not to keep making the same movie over and over again. You know that's the trap that you want to avoid and. You know, there's a very thin line between horror and comedy. And there's a, you know, there, you've, I'm sure you've heard this before, but I think that this is true, that the, stru- the structure of comedy, the structure of setting up a laugh is, is very similar to structure, the structure of setting up a scare. They're really both, they're both paradigms for storytelling. I mean, it's A, B implies C, but you give them D or whatever. Obviously, the first movie, you had the original script for Blood Buddy, which had a, a different concept. I mean, you were obviously inspired by the... Uh, you wanted to satirize marketing and children's marketing, marketing to kids. But it was more representative of um, his id. It was Andy's id rather than just this possessed doll. And it, and it kind of shifted. So I'm kind of curious when you recall how you felt about a lot of the changes. And then once part two came along, you basically had the, the reins the whole way as a writer through the rest of the series. Right. 
You know, at first, I sort of chafed, I guess, a little bit at those changes. I mean, obviously, as the guy who created it, the original writer, I can't be objective about it. I still think that my original concept was creepier and and more interesting and a little more complex. The idea of of this doll that comes to life as a manifestation of a little boy's id and of sort of acting out his unconscious rage. I thought I thought that that was creepier mm. than the sort of black and white. You know, this is a sweet little boy, and here is a doll that's possessed by a serial killer. Um, well, I, I just thought that was more simplistic. However, lots of people disagree with me. I mean, so, <laughs> it's, you know, I, and, and like you said, I mean, I was stuck with it once, you know, that became the, the official part of the mythology of child's play. So, um, you know, on the other hand, I recognize that the way it ended up probably was more conducive to a franchise in a way. You know, because it's like if you if you think of like okay, if if Chucky is Andy Zid, but then Andy becomes a sixteen year old boy and then a thirty year old man or whatever, just it it kind of it that seems like a a complicated setup for longevity, you know, <laughs> for a franchise. So uh, in that in that regard, I'm very happy that um, wiser wiser men prevailed <laughs> <laughs> but then since then too you've worked you've run with it and you've had you've and what kind of creative challenges did you face? i mean the second picture on was with universal so what kind of challenges did you face with the studio over the course of the next five films in terms of your vision for each story and maybe what demands that they had to make it more commercial etc i mean did they have a lot of input or did you get a lot more control after that point you know i i, I, I certainly don't have total control by any means it's you know it's you know, there's me. There, there's David Kirshner, who's been the producer of all the movies, and then and then the studio executive. Well, and, and the respective directors that we've worked with, and then the studio executives, all of whom are pretty much for all of the movies. It's a different batch of people for all of the movies. So there's no, there, there's no or very little consistency in that regard. I'm I'm trying to remember the specific challenges on Child's Play Two. We actually developed that at MGM, where we did the first movie. And when we were in pre-production on Child's Place 2 is when MGM got sold, as it is wont to do all the time. At that, at that point, it was sold to an Australian company called Quintex, whatever that is. And Quintex apparently had a kind of family-friendly image, and they didn't want to do horror movies. So, so that's how we ended up shopping it around, and we ended up at Universal. And it was kind of set up at Universal as a package again, because it's like the we were the script was done and we were in pre-production, and so there really wasn't that much input from Universal at that stage, as I recall, because it, like it was really much more the MGM executives. Okay. You know, it's it's really one of the upsides of doing low-budget horror movies, particularly when you're doing them in the studio system, is that they they tend to leave you kind of alone because they're busy. You know, they're busy making all of their prestigious movies that they hope to be winning Oscars with and dining out with A-list stars and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, except for, you know, times, when, you know, when you, you might go a little too far. Certainly, certainly Seed of Chucky, I would say, was the one that was the most controversial. I mean, when we did, we, we did Bride of Chucky, and that was very successful. 
And then we immediately started developing Seed of Chucky with the same group of executives at Universal. And when I turned the script in, they were pretty confused, I guess. (laughs) Which is is weird, honestly, in the sense that the, the movie that we pitched... And the outline, which is was very detailed, was absolutely the movie that we wanted to make. You know, this very meta-minded, crazy comedy that was not particularly scary and was very gay, also. And that yeah. and that was and that was one of the things that we got back from Universal was that this is too fucking gay. <laughs> I could see that. <laughs> but that but in fact that even became kind of moot because shortly after that Columbine happened. That resulted in the project basically dying. I don't know if you remember at that time Universal had also done Rob Zombie's first film. Was it Devil's Rejects? Uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. House of a Thousand Corpses, right. And you know, and then they, they had this whole movie finished and then they in in the wake of Columbine they decided they didn't want to release it and they sold it. So and we got caught in a similar thing there. So the the project just kind of went in limbo for a while and then a few years later Focus Features which at the time I mean it still is a division of Universal but it's again had it's it's on its third or fourth iteration since then. Anyway, Focus decided to take it up because suddenly uh, horror was was really big again with Freddy vs. Jason. I think that was, the success of Freddy vs. Jason was, was a big deal for Focus wanting to jump into that. And they wanted to get going very quickly. And so we had a script, Seed of Chucky. And they said, okay, let's make that. And we did. And, and then I think when we finished the film, they too were also kind of like, well, this isn't really scary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but that was, that was really the only one that I remember that was like ha- had any particular speed bumps, and and as it as it is the circumstances all you know the stars all aligned so that we actually got to make the movie we wanted to make with Seed of Chucky for better or worse. I mean a lot of yeah. people would say for worse, but um, <laughs> that was the, that was the movie we wanted to make. Well, it's interesting because yeah, there was I mean the first two Child's Play movies came out like a three year span, eighty eight to ninety one. And then you had seven years to Bride of Chucky, then like another seven years to Seed of Chucky, and then eight years to Curse of Chucky. There's a sort of this lapse time for that. Why, how, how did, why do those sort of stay in development for so long? That's the thing. They don't stay in development. They just, they just go into limbo hmm. until a few years later, someone, you know, administrations change and new people come in and they go, oh, we have this iconic character. Let's put a movie out with him. So that's kind of how that happens. I mean, I certainly hope that we don't have another seven or eight year gap between Curse and the next one, but yeah, you never, you never know. <laughs> I don't know. I was just like, it's frustrating that um, I can't have any control over that at all. They want, they definitely want to make another one, so that's good. You know, we're talking. Curse of Chucky was the first straight to video one. I'm kind of curious why they went that route. I know there was also that story in Forbes.com we talked about where they were talking about reboots, reboots versus sequels. But, I mean, they, obviously the movies have been profitable. Right, but A Seed of Chucky was not profitable enough for them to want to just jump right in and do another one. I mean, okay. I think, you know, we, that movie probably just eked out a profit, barely. I mean, once it, you know, went into ancillary markets, it, it did well. But it just wasn't anything where people were like saying, you know, to quote the, the line from Lewin Davis, I mean, I don't really spend any money here. 
um, after Seed of Chucky. But I think that people recognize that the character, you know, and, and his longevity has value beyond, you know, the performance of any single film. And Curse of Chucky did well, I imagine. And Curse of Chucky did really well, yeah. And Kurt, it did really well, and it also was the best reviewed of any of the films in the franchise. Well, it definitely has this great goth. It's like a, it's like a gothic haunted house movie with a possessed doll. I mean, this could have been a ghost movie, but you just you up the up the ante, and, and you have him kind of lurking in the shadows, and right. And he's also digitally enhanced without being digitally replaced. Yeah, he's not even really. I mean, people say that he's digitally enhanced. He's not really. I mean, I, I, I really none of that. None of the facial expressions. Nothing at all. It's really it's just yeah. all all animatronic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there's like one shot where Chucky is coming down the attic staircase. Yep. That is a CG shot, and then one other up in the attic when the girl gets her um, eye. Popped out. Yeah. <laughs> scene. And after he, after Chucky jumps down off the shelf and he races over toward her, that was another CG. But that's it. We did and we didn't do any CG augmentation on space. I think I think what maybe has given people that impression is that in the marketing materials, we had to digitally, you know, cert, certain shots of Chucky where he had his scars because, as you know, in the story he. You know, the scars are, are hidden and then revealed midway through the movie. There weren't that many, that many scenes of, of Chucky without the scars. And we, and, we want, and we wanted to keep that a secret. So they, picked, they used a few shots of scarred Chucky and digitally erased the scars for the marketing materials. And, then, and, and, and so I think that left people with kind of this impression that there was something funky going on with his face. And then there is that logo. You know, the, the logo for the movie with, you know, Fiona in the chair and Chucky is sitting right there. It's a really weird image of Chucky. I mean, it's just really weird. And um, David Kirshner and I did not like it. And we said so, but it didn't seem to matter. <laughs> <laughs> but I really, I really do think that, that that image, that also just got very fixed in people's minds as to, like, there's something weird going on with Chucky's face. Anyway. It's interesting that people, it, there is this persistent feeling that in the movie that there is, you know, digital augmentation to his face, and there's not. I mean, I'd just be interested in that. I mean, do you, off the, you know, off the top of your head, do you remember any specific shots where you felt that? Maybe it was just in the attic for some reason. You know, it, so many of the movies now, and I even see it in something like Lord of the Rings, and... And I was wondering if you guys even did this with Brad in in the in the in the oh, flashback scenes. You know, it's like they there's this kind of it, it's kind of the way when you when you go into like Google Picasso or Photoshop and you can kind of you make them glow a little bit and it kind of gets rid of the wrinkles, like the face becomes whiter, it kind of gets a little yeah. hotter. And I almost wonder if that we did was that it. With, we did that with Brad in that flashback scene, and that's one of the reasons I decided to have that entire sequence in black and white because I thought yeah. that that by stylizing it in that way that that would help um that would be like the spoonful of sugar that would help make that go down you know yeah, yeah. what our really our, our our real goal there was to sell the idea that this was charles lee ray circa 1988 even yes. though we were it was being performed by brad dorff circa 2012 um that so looks yeah, good we, so <laughs> we, did it, we did it there absolutely yeah, I wanted to go back to Seed of Chucky. I mean, it is it definitely is sort of the oddest entry in the series. It's mainly it's really comedy. I mean, it's got elements of horror, 
But if there's some camp element, you've obviously got the nod to Glenn or Glenda, you know, Ed Wood. Um, right. Well, it didn't really hit me the way that some of the other ones did. I look back at it now and go, you know, that's that's a movie you could show, maybe not in a regular gender studies class, <laughs> but like, you know, maybe a gender studies in a horror class, because obviously that's not a topic that's even addressed in that many mainstream films. Right. And it's not something particularly addressed in, in horror movies very much. I mean, horror is still, especially slash movies, is pretty, it's still a pretty hetero genre. Absolutely. I could see the executives going, we don't know what to do with this, even though it's intriguing and, and just in the concept. Yeah, you know, it's funny that um, so far anyway, Seed of Chucky has been the movie, it, it's definitely garnered the biggest sort of cult of all of them. And it's, mm. and it's one that like Jennifer Tilly and I fairly consistently over the years get invited to odd off the beaten path screenings of that movie. Um, the most interesting one was a couple of years ago up in San Francisco. There's this um, drag queen named Peaches Christ, and she do- and she does all of these like shows built around camp movies, basically. Like they did, uh, you know, the Death Becomes Her and Showgirls and stuff like that. Yeah. And they did this whole scene of Chucky show where the movie was preceded by a stage show where they wrote a song and they had all of these drag queens all doing drag queen versions of the various characters throughout the child's play franchise. And they, they wrote wow. this whole song. It was this elaborate, amazing thing. And so to experience that and then to watch the movie in a theater full of drag queens, which was really what it was, <laughs> watching Seed That's of interesting. Chucky, it was, it was really awesome. So it's it's definitely the weirdest film, but I'm I'm gratified to see that it has you know lived on despite its mediocre showing at the box office. Well, you know, I've been reading different interviews over the years, and you're one of the few openly gay horror directors out there. So I'm kind of cu- I'm curious, you know, obviously this this film I think probably touches on certain themes that are important to you. I'm curious, what do you think of sort of the perception of a lot of gay characters in horror movies? I mean, I was particularly thinking about, about Hostel, you know, that really deranged killer in Hostel, where he's like, you know, it's the crazy gay dude, you know, who's got these sick fetishes right. and stuff like that. I mean, what do you think of a lot of gay characters, and not as few as there have been, I think, yeah, in a lot that's, of films? Yeah, you know, that's, you know, we, in Bride of Chucky, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have, if, you know, you'll recall, there's a gay character in Bride of Chucky mm-hmm. who is just sort of casually gay you know it's just like you know he's just like the one of a friend uh you know of the of the lead characters Catherine heigl and nick stabile right um and i you know i thought i thought it was important to do that in the horror genre to counteract and offset the phenomenon that you're referring to where which and by the way i have no objection to characters like the one you um are mentioning from hostel or you know, Catherine Trammell and Basic Instinct, which I love, honestly. Okay. On the other hand, I mean, I can see why, you know, the gay community at large or, you know, certain members of it may take exception to a kind of pattern of depiction of monstrous other. Or yes. Or, you know, the, 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 source, the source of evil. So, we, you know, we just wanted to offset that with, with Bride of Chucky. Now, in Seed of Chucky... You know, we try to explain it in a way that it's almost as if Glenn slash Glenda, because of his complicated gender issues, is, you know, rejected by his father. Yeah. And, you know, and his father, you know, tries to butch him up 
you know, and take him, you know, really there's that whole scene where he, it's almost like he takes him out for a hunting trip, you know, and they go to kill John Water. Um, <laughs> what you know, comes out of that is this poor kid is like, eyes twitching, you know, and, he, and Chucky is like saying, don't tell your mom. It's goofy. Of course, it's incredibly goofy. Yeah. But it is sort of like making a specific point. And I think, to, to me, one of the more powerful moments in that movie, for me anyway, is when Glenn... Well, actually, he's Glenda at this point. When Glenda has, you know, been introduced, and he's got that wig and the mascara running, it's very dressed to kill. And and yeah. Tiffany slaps her, and then he sort of comes back to himself, and he, you know, catches a glimpse <laughs> of himself in the mirror, and he goes, "What am I?" Is you know, this tear is running down his face. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's stuff like that, actually, that made the core audience of hetero, you know, 20-year-old hetero males that are the make up the core of the horror genre, like, looking at that go, what the fuck is this? <laughs> you know, this yes, is not, I can see that. This is not what I paid my $10 for. <laughs> I, I, I do think it made, you know, some of those people uncomfortable because I think, you know, they're, they're, there was a vitriol against that movie. You know, not widespread. I mean, there, you right. know, the, the reaction was, you know, kind of all over the map. And there were, you know, there were some, there was a lot of positive reaction too, which I always very defensively point out that one of our, one of our proponents was uh, Pulitzer Prize winning critic Wesley Moritz. You know, he's one of only two or three film critics to ever win the Pulitzer. He loved Seed of Chucky. Hmm. So, you know, when people say like, oh my God, why'd you make that piece of shit? I said, well, you should talk to Wesley Moritz. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I, I interviewed Roland Emmerich last summer, and I and I asked him. I said, you know, you know when do you think we're going to see the first gay action star? And he's like, he's hoping. He's like, he hoping. He's hoping he gets to do it. As much as I think society is changing, and I, the way I view it is, I think the younger gener each successive generation is less tolerant than what say our generation was, or like our parents' generation. You know, like I think younger people are less homophobic, racist, etc. Absolutely. Um, you know, it seems like it's still taking a while for certain things to happen. I'm curious, do you think we're going to be seeing some sort of gay horror icon, and not just a killer, but, you know, protagonist, human protagonist in this yeah. case, in, like, in, the, you, in the near future? I think we will, yeah. I think we will, and I bet it won't be too far in the future. Are, are you familiar with that movie Hellbent that came out a few years ago? I've heard of it. I haven't seen it, though. It's, it's actually good. I mean, it's very low budget, but it's good. It's made by a guy named Paul Etheridge. And it's a really kind of um, cheeky homosexualization of the slasher model. You know, it's, it's basically about a, a group of young gay guys on Halloween here in L.A. on Santa Monica Boulevard, you know, when everyone gets dressed up. Right. You know, they're, and they're all going to, looking to get laid, like all kids in, you know, Halloween or whatever. In this case, they're all, you know, looking to get you know, laid by men. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, he, but he actually has like, the, you know, the slutty character and then the Laurie Strode final girl figure. But in this case, it's a guy. It's actually it's quite huh. good. I recommend it. Cool. Last decade, we had this huge horror boom, actually. It's interesting. Although I think we didn't see that many new characters. Jigsaw is really the one key character. I think, I mean, I know Wrong Turn had the different cannibal characters, but Jigsaw was really the one main one that hit the mainstream. It seems like we're kind of due for, like, right. another icon. 
Horror. Well, I guess unless you can count Katie from Paranormal Activity. You probably don't see many people dressing up as Katie Featherstone. <laughs> Is that her name, Katie Featherstone? Yeah. It's, you know, I, I finally watched Paranormal Activity 4, and I, I have a tolerance for, th- for certain sequels. You know, I... <laughs> I didn't for a long time, and when I was growing up, I was really into horror movies and stuff, and then I, I went to film school, and I got to my art film phase, I was like, ah, the hell with all these genre pictures, you know, and then I kind of got back, back into it later on, because that's what I love, I love horror, I love sci-fi, I mean, the main point of me wanting to do this podcast, is, as I had said to you the other day, is that I feel that there are a lot of genre, quote-unquote, genre pictures that don't get the respect from the mainstream that they should, that a lot of times people look at a Child's Play, or a Night of the Living Dead, or any number of films, The Ring, and they don't see anything more in it than a bunch of scares. Take a movie like The Ring, and to me, that's the idea of media as a virus, in a way. And it's also right. that idea of the, you know, forward this email to 13 people, you know, and within a week, or, you know, horrible things will happen to you, kind of a thing. Right. And there's more that's going on. There's a, there's a subtext to a lot of these pictures. I mean, obviously, Seed of Chucky deals with a lot of things that people might not have expected. You know, there's a, and also, also, of course, there's a lot of people that get to that point of not even knowing that there were more than a couple Child's Play movies. You know, they kind of, they check out after a while. Right. Uh, people are horrified to learn. I say it was like the, the other 12 Amityville horror movies. They're like, really? I mean, they're not as high profile as Child's Play, but they're out there. It was nine Hellraisers. I did a big story for MSN like a year and a half ago. I caught up in the movies I hadn't seen, and it was amazing. And it was amazing, too, to watch the responses of the fans, because they've clearly seen all these movies. Nine Hellraisers? I didn't even know that. Yeah. There, were, um, there was the first three were theatrical. I've I think seen the, those, of course. And the fourth one was in space, which... Right, that was the, that was the one that Kevin Yeager initially directed, and then, and, and then I think he left the project and someone else finished it and it's an Alan Smithy movie. I think. Yeah, I think it is actually. And then, and then there were four other Hellraisers after that and what it looked like they were were horror films that were recti- retroactively turned into Hellraiser movies where they, they put Pinhead in about three scenes. They had about ten minutes of screen time. In one really? of them he's actually, he comes off as a serial killer and you're like, Pinhead wouldn't decapitate somebody. But you watch this, you're like, what are they doing? And then at the end of the movie, it turns out, you know, spoiler alert for anybody who's actually going to bother to watch at this point, is that, you know, it's not him. It was just all a delusion. And right. I'm like, okay, really? We're just milking this now. And then the ninth one was a reboot without Doug Bradley. And it was done as like... Someone else playing Pinhead? Yeah, and it was a, like a found footage movie. And it was god off. I mean, I was actually fast-forwarding through this, and I rarely do this with anything. I was like, this is I terrible. Not, I was not even aware that that existed. But now they're doing... Didn't they recently announce that Clive Barker is going to oversee like a new new reboot, isn't that right? I, I've heard of that. I, I mean, I, I'm trying to decide really... It, it's the same thing that, you know, you must have dealt with this. I don't know if there's a point. I mean, they, I know they rebooted Friday the 13th. I like Derek Mears, but I just didn't think the reboot was that exciting. I was thinking, you know, I, there must have been talk about doing a Child's Play reboot. And in, and, and you, we, we talked also about that Forbes.com article where the, the writer talked about reboot versus uh, sequel and the idea that a reboot is more profitable because you're going to get new fans who don't know anything about the franchise and the old fans who want to see how it's redone as opposed to a sequel where you have to watch the other five Chucky movies to enjoy the new one, except Curse of Chucky didn't work that way. Right. You specifically made it so you didn't have to see the other Child's Play movies. Had there been talk about a reboot at that point? Yeah, absolutely. We went a couple of years, you know, during those, you know, the eight-year interval, we weren't just sitting idle. You know, we, David Kirshner and I, for two or three years there, we were trying to get a film going that was going to be a remake of the, of the original film. Because that's, you know, it was, it was very much in vogue at the time. And so that was like what people wanted to pay for. 
you know, but we had certain things that we knew we wanted to do with it, and one of them was that we wanted Brad Dorif. We did not want to replace him. Um, so that was number one. And another thing was that we didn't we didn't want to tell exactly the same story. You know, we wanted to really sort of like subvert expectations with our remake. And I can't I don't want to say too much because like sometimes like some of these ideas, like a couple of these ideas actually made their way into Curse of Chucky. Right. And there may be more ideas that will make their way into future Chucky films, but um Anyway, I feel like I'm, I'm getting off this, the subject here. But yes, we we were looking to do a, a remake of the first movie. But during the time that we were trying to do it, all of these other remakes came and went. You know, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah. Texas, Texas Chainsaw, um, and, you know, there are a couple of others. And David and I, we just sort of felt like, huh, you know, so, you know they were not as satisfying as you wanted them to be somehow. And I think no. part, part of the reason was because they're just too familiar. You know, it's just like we, we know these stories already and it just, and we just realized, well, maybe this is a blessing in disguise. It, it's taken a while to get ours off the ground because maybe we can learn from these movies. And that was one of the things we really took to heart was that people want, they want to see their beloved character, their beloved anti-hero plugged into a new situation yeah. so that's you know what we ended up doing my favorite entries are child's play bride of chucky and then curse of chucky and even though bride of chucky is a bit more of a road movie <laughs> i actually think the first and the sixth one work best because it's more of a contained environment child's play three i know i think you had been saying at the point you kind of I don't know if it was true, but I sort of read you were sort of disappointed in that one because you sort of felt like you started running out of ideas at that point. That was a that was a difficult one to do the military academy yeah. one, and it seems like when he's in like an apartment or in a house, it's actually also more believable to me because yeah. the element of surprise is there. There's more places for him to hide, and I feel it's more likely he can do this damage. I remember I interviewed Dee Snider from Twisted Sister back in 1998 when he was uh, mixing the movie Strange Land which is you know, inspired by a Twisted Sister song from the Stay Hungry album. And he was talking about the fact that he thought that at that point, horror fans were desperate for entertainment. You know, that they, and, he, it was, and he sort of had a funny quote. He's like, I was watching Child's Play 3 at the time with my wife and kids, and I'm yelling at the TV, it's a doll, kick it, it's a doll. <laughs> you know, I'm a grown man, and I'm watching a man in perfect condition running yeah, from a doll. I've, I've like discussed this with him in person. Oh, really? And how did that go? <laughs> Actually, on the air. Um, I did a few years ago. We did uh, a radio show with with Tony Timpone in New York, and I forget what it was called. This is for Vangoria. Uh, yeah, yeah, and um, and and Dee's really nice guy. It was, you know, we and we both had a sense of humor about it. We weren't like at each other's throats, but I was like sure. saying, "Come on, dude, you're, you know, you're impugning my life's work here." Because he he really. <laughs> I mean, I haven't talked to him since Curse came out. I don't know if I changed his mind, but I doubt it. Given, I mean, he really hates Chucky. He, <laughs> thinks, he thinks Chucky is the stupidest horror villain ever. At least that's what he said to me. <laughs> he, he, he clearly didn't watch Jack Frost. <laughs> and a lot of other movies. I mean, seriously. But I, but I think you're right. I think that the enclosed environments work for Chucky also because it contains the absurdity. There is just something extra absurd about a little doll. Even in, but the thing is, even in the first movie, I personally had trouble with the notion that Chucky is somehow getting all over Chicago. 
you know, he's just, you know, he like shows up at this apartment and then he shows up on the south side of Chicago to kill the voodoo guy. And yeah. then, then he's at the asylum where the kid, and you're just like, how is he getting around? <laughs> you know, and, and so at various points in the series, we would try to address these issues and you have to do it with humor because it's so silly. I mean, so, you, you know, Chucky cannot reach the pedals of a car. He has to take hostages to drive him places and things like that. And this, these are not problems faced by Freddy Krueger or Jason Voorhees. Yeah. So I think I think that's one of the things that you're responding to is that like by containing the action in a in a house or a mansion or whatever, yeah. you're just keeping a lid on the absurdity. But you know that's where something with Ride of Chucky, where we kind of embrace the absurdity, the yes. notion of a road movie with doll lovers. You know, <laughs> it's like the most ridiculous thing ever. But you know, our decision there was to swim out to the wave and embrace the absurdity and make that an integral part of the film. And I think that you know worked quite successfully in Bride, less so seemingly in C. Well, but also Bride, the thing is, they don't those kids on the run don't realize right away that those dolls are alive and that's right. why i think that works it isn't until later they realize all this crazy shit's happening around them and oh the dolls are alive and then then they start to suspect one another so you yeah know, that that gave each of those characters and each of those actors something very specific to play you know that so there there was an interesting tension that was was cooking there for a long time yeah I mean, so looking back, how did Brad Dorf get that role, and why do you think he's so so integral as Chucky? What makes him literally Chucky? <laughs> well, Brad Brad had done one previous film with Tom Holland before Child's Play called Fatal Beauty, mm-hmm. where he played a you know it, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, but not that one now. He even has the same long hair that he has at the beginning of Child's Play, and he's playing a very similar character. It's just kind of a whacked out killer. So I, I can't take credit for casting Brad. That was Tom Holland's idea. Although I, though I then must, like hasten to add that I met Brad before Tom did. I met Brad when I was in college at Columbia oh, wow. in, the, in the early 80s because um, I audited a, an, an acting class that he taught. But no, it was Tom. It was Tom Holland who brought him in, and it was that which is a brilliant decision because you know Brad is great. I think you know Brad. He has. I, I don't. I don't know that he specifically intended to do this, but he. I feel like Chucky comes off as like a little diminutive version of Jack Torrance. Like he's, just, you know, with that a similar kind of like rage and humor. You know, the, you know, cracking jokes and, and leering at his victims, and you know, just sort of like stomping around, and yeah. you know, that. I. I just think he's. I think the humor, it, even even in the scary ones like Child's Play One and Two and Curse, the humor of Chucky is um, a really uh, indispensable part of the appeal of the Child's Play franchise. And I think that Brad, as an actor, was really smart to bring that to it. But at the same time, he also brings a legitimate gravitas. I think you know he, as an actor, he does not condescend to this material. And believe me, over the course of 25 years and six movies now, I've worked with several actors who condescend to this material. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Fortunately, the guy who's playing our title role does not do that. I mean, he really, he just, he's always like thinking about, you know, Chucky's predicament. Brad will always talk about how Chucky's rage is such an important part of the character. And, and, and rage born of fear, honestly. That this frustration that he's trapped inside this body. And, and the limitations of that, the claustrophobia of that. That's, you know, what he's playing, even though we may not, you know, notice it specifically on the surface of his performance. I just, he's just, he's such a great actor, and it's such a, a, an honor to work with him. Seems, yeah, I met him very, I met you guys very briefly at, after the New York Comic Con. He seems very, like, very serious, intense guy. Like, he's, yeah. <laughs> seems like that normally. Like, he's just, you know, he's really into what he does. I mean, I, I told him I, I really liked him in Exorcist 3, which I first surprised him, because I don't know how, how many people come up and talk about that movie, and that's, like, that was a great performance. I mean, that's, you know, that was actually a great sequel. I wouldn't have expected that after Exorcist 2. Yeah. Another thing too interesting to me is, I mean, when you bring in Jennifer Tilly, that's... And actually, when you brought in Jennifer Tilly, that's when the sex came into the series. Like, I mean, you know, Andy's sort of, you know, he's interested in the girls in military school, and et cetera. But really, when she comes in, it's not just her, it's also the boobs, which she clearly parodies in Seed of Chucky. Right. You know, the perception that people had of her. She, I, was, I, was, I, guess she, I guess what she... I guess she seemed to be game for doing that. Like, she knew people look at her in a certain way, and you played that up. Oh, yeah, she, I mean, when I told her the idea of, of Seed of Chucky, she was, like, giddy at the prospect, and there, you know, there was nothing I could write that she would shy, shy away from, except for one thing. You know, we could, we could make fun of her boobs and her voice, and she herself would, like, would improv stuff. Huh. I mean, where she's just, like, you know, there, there's a scene where, where Tiffany is is dragging Jennifer Tilly's unconscious body across the floor, and she mutters, "Fuck, she's fat." <laughs> it's just like this huge laugh, and um, I would never write that. <laughs> <laughs> but but the only thing she ever blanched at was the scene in Cedar of Chucky where she vomits. I don't know if you remember where she's like gets into the car with her chauffeur. Yes. You know, who um you know is who's spent the movie working up the courage to tell her that he loves her. That's right. And he's just about to say it and suddenly she vomits into her purse. <laughs> You know, it's a, it's a it's a result of the fact that she has morning sickness because she's pregnant now. Exactly. Jennifer is is game. For anything, and that's one um, casting I'm happy to take credit for. That was my idea. I'm presuming in the next one she's going to factor into that since she appears right at the end of Curse of Chucky. Presumably, I'm, Andy I, may appear. May I, I will say nothing about the next one. About I'm curious. Who's in it or I, I, I like. Meh. Have you ever thought of casting her sister as well? Because like, her sister's all these more serious films. And I'm just kind of curious, like what that would be like if you had Jennifer and Meg Tilly in the same picture. Yeah. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, now we've also, I mean, we were talking the other day about the fact that you know, once, it, I mean, horror is one of those genres that's beloved by definitely a certain audience, but then there's a lot of people in the mainstream who don't sort of see into it the same way we do, or also with someone such as yourself, when you're trying to expand into other areas, don't see you in a different way. Have you, have you been trying to do other types of projects and found that it's, it's harder to break out of that mold now that you've got, especially now that you have six films under this banner? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, absolutely. I think especially now at this point in my career, I mean, I, I think people just think of me as the guy who does Chucky and nothing else. Even though, even though I have, you know, sold several scripts, including a couple of TV pilots that never get off the ground, unfortunately, but yeah, it's it's frustrating. I think, you know, just like actors, I mean, Hollywood, you know, puts writers and directors in, in boxes. 
I mean, I, you know, like people, like I get inquiries, like, is she interested in directing, you know, Leprechaun or, you know, Gremlins? <laughs> this is like a very specific niche of like, pu- you know, puppets or diminutive, you know, villains or whatever. But, you know, what are you going to do? It's like, it, 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 at least I have a niche, I guess. I'm still here, so that's good. But, yeah, it's it's frustrating. I'm, I'm, I get more frustrated by... Yeah, people just uh, sort of looking down their nose at the genre because I think I think it's a great genre, and I think that there's so it's, I, yeah. there's a lot of good work done in, in the horror film. I mean, there's there's a lot of terrible work, like, as with any genre. I mean, the the bad outweighs the good. That's just sheer numbers. I I think that uh, people look down their noses at horror more than any other genre, probably. And, but but like I said, there is an upside to that. The upside is like when you're making the movies, they they tend to leave you alone a little more than they might if you're do, you know doing um, something that they just you know they they want to be there for. Yeah, it, well, it's interesting that Curse of Chucky came out now because I I, I feel like the last decade we had a huge horror renaissance. I mean, you had not just the reboots, but you had all the Asian horror remakes and Asian films coming over, and because of the DVD revolution and then Blu-ray, importing titles from all over the world. Obviously, Saw was a big franchise, Paranormal Activity, Final Destination. It's interesting, like, Final Destination and Paranormal Activity, it's really about a concept more than a character. Yeah. In Final Destination, it's death, but you never see death. It's just death is all around. Yeah, and, and now it's sort of like it's a classic character that's come back, but it's not, thankfully, a reboot. So maybe this is just the right timing for this to come along because it maybe you know, but we also maybe maybe also now I'm thinking out loud maybe we really do need like a new horror icon at the same time. I know, yeah. right? I I think so too. I think so too. I mean, I'm, I'm sure like every every horror writer in town has their thinking cap on, <laughs> trying <laughs> trying to think of that next one. But they're hard to do. I think I I love the I love the first Final Destination. That's I, great. That that was like one of, one of my favorite horror movies of the last ten or fifteen years. I just think that's such a brilliant concept. Even even though it does lack that, interestingly, lacks that central horror villain that you're referring to. It's interesting that that franchise nevertheless took off in such a big way. But I don't. But like, do people? I'm trying. Do people dress up as like victims, like specific kill victims? Of I bet they do. I, yeah, I'm curious because you know, and that's that leads me to another thing because obviously there's merchandising, and the New York Times mentioned last year that I was looking up the story here, and it was it was discussing the whole Chucky phenomenon. It said the fearsome Chucky is now beloved. It was force of evil becomes cute and collectible. The fearsome Chucky right. is now beloved in many ways. I mean, people dressed. I mean, it was a thing that went around Facebook. People, this like this family that this couple that dressed up their kids. You know, yeah, as, as Chucky and Tiffany, and like the kids probably probably have no, might not even have any idea what the hell they're dressing up as, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's because they're dolls, of course. I mean, there's you know, there's just there is something inescapably cute about Chuck <laughs> Tiffany. So I, I think that's part of it. But I, I also think that Chucky has become as an icon. He's almost like this ambassador for Halloween. Or like an ambassador for for horror in a way. I think I think it's not it's not surprising to me that kids like him for a number of reasons. I think one of the reasons is that he's little, and and you know kids identify with that in a way. Yeah. Um, another is that Chucky tends to his victims tend to be authority figures, and you know Chucky often subverts the status quo, and so I think that kids and young people, although. I, sh- I should add for the record, kids under 17, not supposed to watch this, 
with, uh, without an accompanying parent or <laughs> which um, is true yeah. that's important of course but I but but there is there is just something about the concept of a doll that comes to life and and swears vanishes <laughs> <laughs> a knife that's delightful as well you know I, I, in just this way that's hard to articulate so I, I, I do just see I think that Chucky has become kind of like the spokesperson spokesperson for the horror genre or or Halloween is, is how I see him isn't there sort of an irony though that you, you created a story you originally were inspired by the idea of how in a way sort of insidious marketing to kids can be and now you've got something that is kind of marketed to kids now it's sort of yeah. like it's an yeah. r-rated thing and yet they know kids like it and there's I, I guess there's been all sorts of crazy chucky merchandising too over the years yeah well i think it's it's the merchandise that really i think targets the kids not the movies i mean the movies i mean the mpaa i, I mean we you know we the filmmakers i mean we're very mindful of the fact that these movies are not for children that said you know when i was a kid i don't know how old you were when you saw your first gore-drenched r-rated movie i was 12 or 13 13, yeah it was the omen oh yeah and i turned out all right (laughs) and you turned out all right you know i think (laughs) so i'm not sure i guess it's debatable but like we haven't done anything anything worse than like you know loving this stuff but but yeah, the merchandise, you know, there. I mean, dolls and comics and to, uh, you know, toys and yeah. kinds of things. I mean, yeah, uh, kids love it. You know, watching Child's Play one and two again this week, having Alex Vincent in that lead. I mean, he did such a great job. I mean, a lot of times child actors really annoy me, and he didn't. Yeah. And his performances are so sincere. I remember when he was at Comic Con saying how he was afraid to say the word bitch in front of his mom and he was getting really upset and it's like <laughs> I think I think the thing about Alex is in um even as a child he had an instinct and I and I don't I, I mean for all I know maybe Tom Holland, you know, directed him in this specific way. But he Alex always seemed to have an have an instinct to underplay. And that's a really useful instinct for any actor to have mm. I think the value of underplaying and it's but it's especially good with child actors because you know that annoying quality that you're referring to it's just because child actors they tend to overplay but it, it's hard to say to a five-year-old you're telegraphing you know you're you're nose. <laughs> Um, but Alex, he just always had an instinct to underplay, and I think that's why he was. Uh, it, it's the same as like Danny Lloyd in The Shining. I thought that they had a similar vibe. They also had a similar haircut. That that weird <laughs> ubiquitous '80s bull haircut that little kid, little boys had in the movies. Yeah, and 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 Alex still has that instinct as an adult too. You know, it's like when I um had the idea to put him in this movie, but the, the studio naturally, they like, they needed to see, can this guy still act? You know, what are we getting, what are we in for? What are we going to getting ourselves into? So um, Alex had to do a screen test and he was great. You know, he, ju- he just has a good, a good instinct as an actor. He's also a really smart guy. It's just like one of the most interesting experiences of doing all of these movies over the course of a quarter of a century is meeting him as a five or six year old and no, you know, now, and I, I'm friends with him as an adult. I mean, I suppose that's just part of the phenomenon of being 50 years old as well. It's just, you meet people and they grow up. My God, it's like magic. 
But Alex, it, partly through the, the magic of Facebook, I mean, it was really interesting to reconnect with him as an adult. And it's like, because it's like a different person. You know, he's a completely different person, but we have this weird thing in common in our past that were yeah. like incredibly important to us. So there's this weird bond. It was just really nice to see he turned out to be such a cool guy. Did you talk to him when, when we were in New York? I might have been very, very briefly, I think, actually. It's funny because he didn't... I did, actually, and he seems very nice. He doesn't seem that comfortable with the spotlight. I got the vibe that to him, it's just he's surprised he's still being asked to talk about it. He's, he seems very I mean, modest. Yeah, he is very modest, He's and he's really smart. He's a re- really smart guy. He's a good writer. He's really into music. Yeah, it's just it's just been a pleasure getting to know him as an adult, and it was it was fun to work with him. It would, and that day on Curse of Chucky, that was day one. That scene, which is the very end of the movie, and after the credits, was the very first, we had to do the very first day. It was like some of the hardest puppetry as well, where they're like. Chucky has to sit up in that box and you know look around. We didn't have a schedule that would allow the puppeteers to have any rehearsal time. Hmm. So you know, and we never do. I mean, it's just the way. It's very frustrating. So you always try to schedule all the hardest puppet stuff later in the schedule. So by that point, they will have become a well-oiled machine. But on day one, you just can't expect that. So it was really like right into the frying pan on day one with Alex and Tony Gardner. Yeah, yeah. So finally, I know I'm, I'm curious. Something I wanted to ask you is, I'm going to see. Obviously, you're a horror fan growing up, so I'm kind of curious what some of your favorite horror movies were and the ones that really made a, a lasting impression on you. You know, we talked earlier about what our our first R-rated films were, and mine at the age of 13 was The Omen. I did and Outland actually. What's that? The, I did Outland with Sean Connery, Outland. and exploding heads freaked me out. I was uh, horrified. Yeah, that was, that was some good. That was some good Grand Guignol. In <laughs> yes. The Omen made a huge impression on me, just, you know, the gore, but also because I was, as a kid, you know, Italian guy, I was raised Catholic, you know, so it's like, at the age of 13, I took this stuff pretty seriously. Then I really got into the films of Brian De Palma. I I really Mm. loved Carrie and The Fury and Dress to Kill. I was more into these kind of fancy ones than Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, I, I I was... it's interesting. I was more into the studio ones, and those are kind of a, what, what I've ended up doing, in fact. Although, I mean, Curse of Chuck, even though it's technically a studio movie, it's, it was very low budget. It was like making an indie film. But the other ones, like Bride of Chucky, you know, Bride of Chucky we made in 1998, that was $18 million. And looks it, you know, just wow. like, it's, like I, I, it's one of the things as a, as a filmmaker, one of my attractions to the horror genre is the, um, the stylization. I, that that's what I personally am interested in creatively. I, I love atmosphere and the lighting and the production design and stuff like that. And so I'm less interested in the, the sort of gritty ones. And that's why even like the, the current vogue for found footage movies, although I've, I enjoyed you know, a few of them. I enjoyed Blair Witch and the first Paranormal Activity. I'm not. I'm not as interested in those as a creative person, just because they just don't present the opportunities for that kind of visual 
elegance, you know, and I just yeah. find like the collision of a kind of elegant cinematic presentation with violence or kind of frightening material, just an interesting palette, if that makes sense. You know what film I was watched again recently, which I love, is The Legacy, which came out in 78. Catherine, Catherine Ross? Yes. Isn't it, that, and the director's the guy who did um, Return of the Jedi. Yeah, Richard Marquand, and, and yeah. I, I really, I mean, it's funny because the characters aren't that well developed in that story. It's really about her and her boyfriend going off to this, for this architecture job, and it turns out they get into this accident, quote-unquote, with this rich guy who leads them to the house, where she's evidently part of this, becoming part of this coven of, you know, she wasn't even aware she was related to. But there's something interesting about that movie. That's kind of like a very elegantly shot film. It's kind of mysterious. I love yeah. seeing Roger Daltrey as this kind of wise-ass <laughs> executive. And doesn't he get his throat caught? Like he's choking or something? And someone has to... Yeah, they, they have to do tracheotomy, but she does it too late. Yeah. And there's the scene with the swimming pool where a woman dives in, and it's like suddenly like it's... Like it's Glass. Out. Yeah, she can't get out. I love that movie. It's like it's, it doesn't... It, it, some of it doesn't make sense, actually, but... It's funny, like, when I watched, I used to watch, like, I grew up, I saw some of the Dario Argento stuff, maybe one or two of the Lucio Fulci movies, and I sort of watched them, and at the time, like, these are really violent, and I don't kind of see the point, and, and I was reading later on, so I was like, you know, this writer was just praising his love for these Italian horror movies and the idea of the waking nightmare, and as soon as they said that, I was like, oh, you know what, <laughs> that makes complete sense now, it's like, sometimes it's the context, and maybe even with a thing like Child's Play, if you're going to look at it literally, and you're going to look at it objectively and go, okay, it's a freaking doll. Like, how much damage can this thing actually do? But then I thought about it watching the first two again, saying, yeah, but this is really more about the kids. In the first two, it's about his perspective. And to him, everything is heightened. He's only a few right. years old. This thing is coming to life. And the adults are free freaked out enough that they don't know what's going on. And it really is, in a way, his own nightmare. I mean, you can also look at it that yeah, way. It's absolutely. his own personal, it's... personal child's nightmare. We really thought of, especially the first two movies, as kind of inverted fairy tales. Mm. You know, and that's and in those movies, and we did this in Curse as well. We designed the sets, for example, so that they they were very tall, and we always you always get to see the ceilings and the doorways and the doors loom really high. And all of this is kind of like the iconography of a child's nightmare. And it's also the point, the perspective of a child, the child a child has on the world. It's also the perspective that a two foot tall doll has on the world. <laughs> It's true, and I and I sometimes I sit there and I think it's like it's like the movie Gravity, which I really loved. There's a lot of stuff in there where scientists are like, well, this is inaccurate, or like these ships were not you know in commission at the same time. And I see those points technically. And my dad likes to make fun of me whenever I say this about certain films. It's like it's a metaphor. That movie is a metaphor <laughs> for what she's going through in her life. And yes, it's, you can't probably can't use a uh, fire extinguisher in space because that would probably just freeze. It probably wouldn't do anything. But that's kind of not really the point. If they were trying, I mean, like 2001, it needed to be more accurate because it was more accurately trying to depict space. So I think Gravity did a very good job. But yeah, there's a certain artistic license now. There are some films that are just utterly ridiculous. I was mentioning Jack Frost before The Killer Snowman. I was just like, and I think it had, it had one of the gals from American Pie in it. Shannon Elizabeth? She, I think it was her, and, and I can imagine she probably wasn't particularly proud of being killed by a snowman while she's naked in the <laughs> bathtub. Just not. <laughs> like, yeah, and, and, you know, you talk about... The, it's, it's, it came out in 97. 90, it's a horrible movie. And, but, yeah, you know, here we're talking about how people don't respect horror films, and yet, funny, look at how many stars began in slasher films. Kevin Bacon, Tom Hanks, uh, Johnny Depp, and then in terms of, like... Catherine Heigl. Kevin Heigl, uh, Jennifer Aniston, and then you have with Amityville Horror, Amityville 3D, Meg Ryan was in it. 
So it's like, it's kind of a training ground. And in a lot of ways, some of the big directors like Peter Jackson, James Wan, where do they come from? Horror right. films. Clearly, if they can do those things on a low budget, they can do lots of other stuff. That's my sermon. <laughs> I, uh, you're preaching to the converted. <laughs> so, but, uh, but thank you very much for chatting. Thank you for having me. I, I, I really appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. Now I'm gonna, you're going to have to send me like the, the ultimate Chucky item I need to own. Yeah, so I know. Was, I was just like actually been looking back there. It's like a, a, I'll think of something. I used to collect. I, I mean, I had all of the Chucky merchandise. I mean, it had tons and tons of Chucky stuff. But over the years, I've given most of it away. Honestly, <laughs> because yeah, it's just like I meet people such as yourself who like, it's like oh, and it's like oh yeah, I can send you this. Because I mean, after a while, I just like you know, I've lived with it for a while, and I feel like oh, this is gonna make this person happier than it does me. So. Oh, well, that's yeah, very nice. I, I, I've probably given away some stuff that like amounts to a certain, you know, it's it's probably adds up to something. Yeah, I've given a lot of it away. But You're going to keep his legacy alive no matter what. Yes. <laughs> this episode of Guilty Treasures is copyright 2014 by Brian Reisman, and it is being presented on Cinephile.com with my permission. 